at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 17. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness." But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold true to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we are in 2 Thessalonians, and we're coming to a very exciting passage, as you heard it read. Uh, the question is, some of you are thinking, is he going to name the Antichrist today? <laughs> Maybe. Stay, stay alert. We'll see where this goes. It's, it's a portion of Scripture that has a lot of different opinions, a lot of different theories, many really solid Bible-believing Christians disagree on some of these specific details. Um, I want to do justice to the text. I don't want to avoid anything here, but I also want to show you what's clear, what all Christians agree on, and I think what we need to hear this morning. I think the best way to approach this passage is to look at it as an interplay between truth and deception, truth and falsehood. As you read this passage, uh, it is clear that what Paul is really addressing here is a, a, an erroneous teaching, false teaching. He's trying to correct it with the truth. And so whatever he shares, he shares in this context, I think. He is first clarifying confusion in the Thessalonian church regarding the timing of the Lord's return which is, seems to be rooted in a false teaching that came into the church. Now, we saw something similar happening in the first Thessalonians. Uh, Paul already addressed one particular issue regarding the second coming. Now it's a different issue, but it seems like there's a lot of confusion in Thessalonica about the Lord's return, so he's teaching them. As he corrects this one particular misconception, he then talks about what is supposed to happen according to God's revelation before the Lord returns. 
which involves a large-scale deception. Against, again, we see the deception and truth kind of come in, in conflict here. And finally, Paul concludes this chapter by pointing to the eternal truth of the gospel that can strengthen us as we engage in this conflict between truth and lies as we wait for the Lord's return. So here's my outline for today. We'll work through this text under four headings. And there in your notes, one, temporary confusion, two, present deception, three, final delusion, and four, eternal truth. Temporary confusion, present deception, final delusion, and eternal truth. Now, I think not just this passage, but the whole story of humanity can be described in terms of the conflict between the truth and the lie. Very early on in the garden, God gives his word to his created people, and and he says, this is really important for you to believe what I say, to see reality in light of what I'm teaching you, how I am seeing this. Uh, The first couple rejects that view, in fact, embraces a lie from our enemy, and everything goes badly, and really not until Jesus returns that that lie would be completely overthrown forever. So we're dealing with this conflict. Even now, we're wrestling. What is true? What isn't? How do I live my life on the basis of what God tells me truth is? And how do I avoid and reject various lies that are coming my way? So this is just an expression of that. This passage is dealing with a much larger issue. So let's look at the temporary confusion that we find in the church in Thessalonica. This is how the chapter begins. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Paul must have received some report from Thessalonica that a false teaching has been gaining influence in that church. Now, we're not sure how that false teaching came in. He's not sure. He says maybe it's a prophetic utterance in the Spirit. Maybe it's a sermon, spoken word. Or maybe it's even a letter that came from someone else, but it was forged, and people thought it was a letter from Paul with apostolic Authority, And you could imagine what kind of confusion that would have caused to the church. But the result of that teaching was that they believed that Jesus had already come, or at least were thinking about that as a possibility, and they were shaken, alarmed, confused by this false teaching. And so Paul writes to correct it, writes a letter to them to make sure they know what they are to believe. Now, about a year and a half ago, I got an email just out of the blue from someone named Scott, and he and his girlfriend, then-girlfriend Peggy, came to my church in Chicago for probably just a few weeks. In fact, I had a hard time kind of remembering them, had to look up Facebook, which is what you do now to see, what's that person look like? So you go look at their pictures and realize that's who I thought it was. And so Scott emailed me and and just asked about my family, reminded me that they were part of the church for just a short time, reminded me that I had got together with him for Bible study at least once. And then he said that they are now married, and he was baptized as a, as a Jehovah's Witness, and he now has uh, a part in their ministry. And basically telling me he's figured it out. Whatever doubts he had then, and he had lots of doubts, whatever he was struggling with then, he now understands what the truth is. And implicit to that email, he wanted to share that with me. I responded to the email that it grieved me to hear that they are part of the Jehovah's Witnesses now, and that I was praying that the Spirit would lead them into all the truth and make the gospel clear from the pages of the Bible that he spends so much studying. And I said that I'm not responding in this way to argue with you, but I do believe that your lives are at stake. I've not heard back from him. I hope I do. 
I hope that it matters to him what I said, but I don't know that it would. He seems to be all in on the Jehovah's Witness heresy. To my great regret that this is what happened to them. Now that happens a lot. You get to know somebody and then you find out that they have accepted wholeheartedly a particular falsehood. Now you may not know this, but along with many other strange unbiblical teachings taught by Jehovah's Witnesses, they also teach that Jesus had returned already on October 1st, 1914. That's the date. Uh, this is easily, you can go online, find out if what I'm saying is true, but this is an official teaching that they have, that Jesus had returned in 1914. Now, some of us are saying, well, if he had returned, how come we, we don't know? How come we haven't noticed that he returned? Well, that is because it was an invisible spiritual return. You see, the Jehovah's Witnesses their prophets painted themselves in a corner with a very specific prophecy about Christ's return on that date. And when he didn't return, obviously, physically, bodily, they had to reinterpret that prophecy. And so it became a spiritual, invisible return, which is what they now believe. And they believe that's when Jesus entered into heaven to rule over the world. Now, that's a false teaching. And you can see how it develops. You can see how a prophet comes about and he says, this is what's going to happen. And when it doesn't happen, it gets reinterpreted so that the prophet can still keep some sort of integrity. It happens today all the time. It happened in the church in Thessalonica. They thought that maybe Jesus had returned because somebody told them that it happened. It happened in 1914. There are many other prophets. There are many other Bible scholars, so to speak, that claim these different things about Christ's return. False teachings spread all over the place all the time. And so Paul here corrects a particular one, and we correct particular teachings as they come up. But how do we do that? How can we correct a teaching, a false teaching? How, how does Paul do this? Well, look, he reminds them of the authoritative apostolic teaching they have already received. Verse 5, he says, do you not remember that? That when I was still with you, I told you these things? They must have forgotten. When a false teacher came in and preached a different doctrine, Paul says, you need to remember what you were taught from the beginning, what the authoritative apostolic teaching was. And as he teaches them further in this chapter, what he does is he actually refers back to Daniel and the teaching that came through the prophet Daniel, specifically Daniel 11. In other words, Paul is correcting a lie by using the already revealed truth of Scripture through the apostolic witness that is now in the New Testament, through the prophetic ministry of Daniel in the Old Testament. Paul is not given a new doctrine. He's not trying to adjust to what the prophets said in their time that may have not have happened the way they said, and so now you, you make a different teaching out of it. No, he doesn't do that. He says, just remember what we've always told you. Remember what the Scriptures declared. And so now you can interpret what's happening around you. You can assess what's happening around you based on the revealed truth you already have. Now that's the approach. Now let's get into some controversial stuff in our passage as we try to hopefully bring a little more clarity out of this confusion. That's what the Thessalonians are dealing with. Many of us today, we're trying to figure out what the Bible teaches on some of these things. So here's what's clear in verse 3. It's clear. Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of Christ's return, the day of judgment, will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul says, remember what I've told you. Remember what Daniel taught. Before Jesus returns, there will be a great rebellion, and there will be a man, a leader, the man of lawlessness, who will be revealed. Now, the implication here is that the Thessalonians can look around and say, well, that hasn't happened yet. 
We know that hasn't happened. Thus, whatever rumors we hear about Christ's return, that cannot be true. So two things, Paul says, need to happen first. One, the rebellion, and two, the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Now, he says this knowing that the Thessalonians would, would agree with him that neither has happened. So it's important that he's not using some obscure things that somebody can say, well, we knew about this and we put things together and now we know what happened. No, he's saying something that would have been obvious to them. He says it to encourage them that things are moving forward according to God's plan as he had taught them and they don't need to be alarmed by prophecies and teachings that disagree with God's plan as it has been revealed. Now, that must have been very clear to the Thessalonians, and it may not be as clear to us today. There's something that is lost, I think, from there to now. I think he's referring to something that he's taught them, that they knew that they could easily identify. And for us, we don't quite know exactly what he meant. So I would like to give you the most likely interpretation, in my opinion. You need to know that there is no consensus among good Bible-believing evangelical scholars on what the rebellion is and who the man of lawlessness is. Those two things that Paul says need to happen. There's no consensus. Even people that, that in their commentaries take a position, and some don't even take a position, but those who do, do it so carefully and do it so humbly. And I think we need to do that as well. But I will give you, because this is my responsibility to interpret the text for you, I will give you what I think is the most likely thing that's happening here. I think rebellion is best understood as a spiritual falling away. I don't think this is about the world becoming more rebellious. The world is rebellious already. The word here is apostasy. And I think Paul is talking about a mass apostasy in the church. I think he's talking about those who identify as believers, rejecting the truth, falling away, so that a large part of the church leaves the true faith. Now, I think that makes sense in light of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 10 through 13. Let me read it to you. Matthew 24, 10 through 13. Presumably, they would have had that teaching in Thessalonica as well, because that, at least orally, would have been passed down to them, but certainly was quickly recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. To me, I think the most, the easiest interpretation here, it doesn't solve all the problems, but the easiest interpretation is that Paul says the church is going to fall away at some point, and you will know that if you're in the church. He's saying you Thessalonians will know if the church has really gone astray in mass. So there's, there's a huge number of believers. Those who thought they were believers, identified as believers, are not walking away from the truth. The Thessalonians presumably could look around and say, no, we see our church, we see all these other communities around us, they are holding on to the gospel. Yes, they're persecuted. Yes, some of us are confused. But in, in, in general, we're holding on to the truth. So the rebellion hasn't come yet. Who is then this man of lawlessness, the son of destruction? Well, the son of destruction simply means that he will be punished. He will be judged and destroyed. Man of lawlessness simply means he is a lawless man. But not just any lawless man, but one who would promote lawlessness. It's the same person that is referred to as the Antichrist in other passages of Scripture. He's the person who will either lead this great apostasy in the church or benefit from it. Verse 4 explains that it is he who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship 
so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Somehow, this leader will become a godlike figure in the church or even declare that he is God himself. Now, I interpret the temple of God here to refer to the church. I think this is how the Thessalonians would have understood that. But there are many opinions and certainly many good scholars would hold to the temple being in Jerusalem. But at any rate, when Paul writes this to the Thessalonians, he is sure that they would know whether that man of lawlessness has been revealed or not. They could look around and say, do we have this figure? And they had plenty secular leaders that would have fit that if it was about the world. But they didn't have anybody in the church who would fit this description. They would have looked around and said, this hasn't happened yet. The rebellion hasn't come. The man of lawlessness has not been revealed. And so the Lord Jesus has not returned whatever these false prophets are telling us. Now, I am treading lightly here. I'm being very careful because on the one hand, we must be humble and we just simply have to admit whether you're a preacher or a Bible scholar or a person who just reads the Bible and tries to understand that, we need to be humble and admit that the details may not be all that clear to all of us. It is crucial to acknowledge that good Christians disagree, good scholars disagree on the details. However, on the other hand, we shouldn't avoid these passages. We shouldn't avoid reading them or studying them or preaching on them. Because there is a pattern that we need to see here, and the pattern is very clear. The pattern is that it will get worse for the church before Jesus returns. Now, they're experiencing persecution already. There's some level of deception here. But Paul says there will be a final deception. There will be a final apostasy in the church. There will be somebody who will come and do outrageous things in the church. And you will know then that the end is near. Now let me talk about this dynamic of reading these passages and applying it today, but also looking and anticipating what is yet to come and being careful to observe those signs. There are two aspects to this biblical teaching on the end times. There's a present fulfillment, and then there's the final fulfillment. Now, it actually is another pattern in Scripture. You can see this is how typically how prophecies are being processed. There is a prophecy that is made that may be partially fulfilled in that time, that will be finally fulfilled when Jesus returns. It's the same way that I think healings work in our time. We pray for someone's healing, and we pray, Lord, please do that now. Also knowing that there will be a final healing that is yet to come. So we're asking for a partial fulfillment now, for an expression of what God is going to do now. And yet we are confident that there will be a full fulfillment, a full, full healing that will come at the end of time when he returns. So that present fulfillment and final fulfillment dynamic is at play here as well. So presently, there are varying degrees of persecution and deception depending on the place and time. There are churches that are now persecuted severely. There are churches that hardly experience any persecution. There are churches that are ravaged by false teachings now, and there are some that remain fairly strong and unassaulted by heresy. There are various degrees, but there is a present reality of persecution and deception for the church as a whole. And yet there will be a final persecution and a final deception. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, pay attention to what's happening now. Don't be unaware that the truth is being assaulted now. But also, make sure you're paying attention because there will be a time when there will be a much greater persecution, a much greater deception. Now, this is how one of the commentators put it. This is from Greg Beale. He says, It is clear that persecution and deception started in the first century and have continued ever since. So the Great Tribulation has been going on throughout the age of the church. To be sure, 
this tribulation has not yet reached its climax. There will be an escalation of the present tribulation when the last individual, incarnate Antichrist, appears. At that time, persecution and deception, which formerly affected only part of the church, will be present throughout the worldwide church, at which point Christ will return. In my view, this is how I make sense of it. I hope it's helpful to you. Taking these passages and applying them now, but also looking at the final fulfillment in the end, is the most healthy way to deal with this. To me, that resolves a lot of issues, a lot of questions that we have to these teachings. I also think it's very biblical. We see all over the Bible the partial fulfillment and the final fulfillment dynamic. For example, 1 John 2, verse 18. 1 John 2, verse 18. This is an example of how other Christians at the same time are processing these, these teachings. John says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. What is he saying? He's saying, yes, there is the Antichrist that is still to come, a person who will embody all these things, who will be able to finally deceive, be able to finally persecute, who will bring to head this conflict between truth and falsehood. This will happen still. We need to be careful to be prepared for that, to observe the signs. And yet, he says, we now have many antichrists, some of the people from our own fellowship, he says, that we thought they were with us and they never were, and now they've left us because they never were with us, because they oppose the truth, they oppose the gospel. These false teachers, too, are antichrists. And so the, the prophecy about the, this figure coming is fulfilled now, and it will be fulfilled finally later. Thessalonian believers were persecuted, and they were dealing with all sorts of false teachings that Paul needs to correct. However, he tells them, wait until the final rebellion happens and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And this has not happened yet. We live in that time. We live in the time of present deception. There's lots of false teachings. There are different levels of persecution. This is where we are as a church, as a Christian community. We need to be careful to acknowledge that the truth is being assaulted now. We need to defend the truth now. But there will be a greater deception that is yet to come. Now we have leaders from within the church that are deceiving others. But there will be one leader, and it's, I don't know how it's going to happen. I, I, I'm trying not to watch those movies so I don't envision that person in a particular way. I don't know. But according to the Bible, there will be that person who will be that, that falsehood incarnate, that powerful leader that will be able to lead even those who consider themselves believers astray. And that is yet to come. Now look at verses 6 and 7 that describe our present state, our present uh, deception that we are dealing with. Verses 6 and 7. And you know what is restraining him, so the man of lawlessness now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. We live in that time when evil is restrained, when falsehood is restrained, and yet the mystery of lawlessness is at work. Is the deception spreading? Yes. But is it being controlled? Yes. It's not as bad as it's going to get, but it's plenty bad. And we need to be careful to see that that mystery of lawlessness, though not fully revealed, it is at work. We need to be on our guard. Deception and persecution are at work now, but they are restrained. Now, this is where I'm going to plead ignorance again. I don't know what or who is restraining this wickedness. 
And again, you'll find 17 options in any given commentary. The confusion is because it's first a what, and then it's a who. Who fits that category? So, so some would say, well, that's the Roman Empire. That's the what. And the Roman Emperor, that's the who. Well, we don't have one anymore, so I'm not sure how that morphs. Some say maybe it's just, just the order, the lawful order, the civil order of civilization and the leader of that civilization. That's who restrains this deception. Maybe. Some say it's the Holy Spirit that, that restrains this deception. But why would he be referred to as a what? It's unclear. And some say that's angelic power. Maybe somebody like Michael, the archangel from the book of Daniel that is restricting. Remember, he was fighting with the demonic powers and holding them back. So maybe that is what, what is happening here. If you were forced if you were forced to choose, or if I was forced to choose, I would probably go with the angelic being and the angelic powers being in control, being restrainers, but I, I don't know. But no matter what interpretation seems to fit all the criteria that are important to you, whatever, wherever you land, it's important to notice that the message is clear that evil now is restrained, and ultimately it is part of God's plan and an expression of God's mercy. Somehow over whoever the agent of the restraint is, God rules over that, and God is making sure that evil is being restrained now. Okay. So what is the practical application we take away from that? What do we do during the time of present deception and various degrees of persecution? Although it is restrained, the opposition to God's truth is at work. So to combat the present deception, we root ourselves in the knowledge of the truth. We must root ourselves in the knowledge of the truth. Just because we don't understand all of the details doesn't mean we don't know the truth. And it doesn't mean we cannot protect ourselves from various heresies. Verse 15, Paul says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. The call for us today is to stand firm and to hold to the biblical revelation. In the meantime, even as we wait for Christ's return, preceded by this great apostasy and the revelation of the Antichrist, we are to stand firm and hold to the revealed truth. Now go with me, please, to Acts 17, 11, and 12. Acts 17, 11, and 12. Paul and his teammates are kicked out of Thessalonica, where our letter is written to later. They go to the neighboring town of Berea. You may remember that the Jews of Thessalonica opposed Paul and persecuted him and the church while the Gentiles embraced the gospel. So the Thessalonian church is largely Gentile. But the situation in Berea was different. It's the Berean Jews that embraced the gospel and even some Gentiles followed them. So let me read Acts 17, 11, and 12. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Paul is preaching the gospel, and the Jews in the synagogue are listening to Paul, but they have their Bibles open, their scrolls, unrolled, and they're listening to what he's saying, and they're checking that against the Old Testament that they know. And because what he says aligns with the revelation in God's scriptures in the Old Testament, they believe him, and they embrace the gospel, and they believe in Jesus, and the church in Berea is started. Notice that they believe because it goes together with the revelation they already have. They're examining the scriptures daily to make sure that what Paul is saying is right, that it accords with 
God's revelation. I wonder if you follow the Bereans' example. I wonder if it is your practice in life to check things with the Scriptures. When you hear a teaching, like today, or on the radio, or, God forbid, on YouTube, if you hear a teaching, do you go to your Scriptures and you say, does this accord with the revealed truth that I have in this book? When was the last time you opened the Bible on your own and you read it? And if you say, I remember exactly when it was, because it was on Good Friday of last year, and I just remembered that because it was Good Friday, you're not doing what the Bereans are doing. And if you can't remember the last time you opened your Bible, you're not doing what they're doing. This is a great example for us to stay rooted in the truth of God's revealed Word and check everything that comes our way with the Scriptures. But it's not enough just to be in a good church. It is good to be in a good church. And it's a blessing to be in a church where the Bible is honored and it's taught and it's read in the service and the preacher does his best to interpret it correctly. It is a blessing. It's good. But it's not enough. It's not enough. You need to check what the preacher is saying with your own study of the Scriptures. You need to have a pattern of going to the Bible yourself and learning from the Bible yourself. Do you do that? The old illustration, I've heard, I'm sure you've heard it many times, I've heard it many times, the way the FBI trains their people to spot a forgery, to spot uh, a counterfeit currency. How do they do that? They put them in the room with the real money, and they just tell them to examine the real money, to know what the real money is like, to know what it feels like, to, to know what the proportions are, what the colors are. Because only when you know what the real thing is, and you can tell that this is truth, this is what God said, then you can spot a fake. But if you don't know what the truth is, you are in great danger to be led astray. You may get confused and you may get deceived, and you will certainly not be able to withstand the final delusion before the Lord returns unless you know the Scriptures. I do that frequently, and I'll do this now. Please, please, please commit to reading the Bible on your own. If it's hard for you to get into a pattern, find somebody to help you. Find accountability in your small group, with your friend, with your family. Put a reminder on your phone. Do whatever you need to do so that you are regularly reading the Scriptures on your own, studying them, trying to understand even hard passages like this one. If you do that, you will know when a false teaching comes your way. You will. Christians are not stupid by and large. Some of us are, but most of us, we're not stupid. If we know the Bible, we're able to tell if something wrong is coming our way. We're able to see that it's, it's, it's a lie, it's falsehood, it's confusion, because it doesn't align with all of Scripture. Now, let's talk very briefly about final delusion, and then I'll finish, hopefully, with encouraging things that will tie it all together. This is the final delusion, as is described in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness." At some point in the future, the Bible teaches us, at some point in the future, God will lift the restraints and Satan will use all his power through this representative human leader, whoever he will be, this lawless one, to assault the truth one last time. Friends, there will be lots of evidence signs and wonders. Now the Bible tells us they will be fake, but they will seem real to many, many people. And many people will follow Satan and follow the Antichrist. 
Satan will mirror the truth. So it will feel like it's so close. It just sounds true. It looks true. And yet it isn't. He will set up this antichrist, this pseudo-savior, this pseudo-Christ, which in the language in this passage is used that is similar to the language that is used of the appearing of Christ. So this lawless one will appear like Christ appears. He will be incarnate in some way as Christ was incarnate. He will teach with power. He will do miracles. He will maybe help people. And yet he will not be Jesus. And he will not be from God, but he will be from Satan. His father sends his son to save us, so Satan sends this antichrist to hurt us. Lots of people will be deceived. The church will largely be deceived. And look at verse 11. God will actually allow many people to pursue their own folly. Those who refuse to love the truth, and the truth means the gospel, it means the gospel message. Those who refuse the gospel of salvation through Christ now will be given over to a strong delusion and allowed to ignore the truth completely and take pleasure in unrighteousness. So right now, there are many people who are confused. They're struggling. They may see parts of the gospel as appealing to them. They may see that sin is still, is still disturbing in some ways. But there will be a time when God will just lift the restraints from Satan and allow him to do what he has wanted to do all along. And those who have rejected the truth will now be given over to their delusion. And they could believe full-heartedly with their whole minds the lies of Satan. And they will delight in doing wrong things, delight in doing wicked things. Now this is yet to come. It's a great tragedy for God to turn us over to our own sin. Now some people think that's freedom. Some people think I can finally do what I want to do. God, get away from me. Do not restrain me. And yet when God lifts his restraints from us, and we can actually pursue sin as much as we want and believe falsehood as much as we want, it will be a great tragedy. One commentator says that God punishes sin by sin. God punishes sin by sin. Friends, I pray that you will not be in the category of people completely given over to their delusion. While there is still time, while you may be just confused now, you have not been fully convinced of the lie, while there is still time, turn to Jesus, embrace His truth now, and be saved. Be saved. Be saved from the great delusion that is yet to come. Be saved from eternal punishment because you have believed in the truth of the gospel. But when things will appear to be hopeless, with Satan's power unrestrained in that last time, when the Antichrist has been able to deceive even many so-called Christians, our Lord Jesus will appear and will destroy the enemy with the breath of his mouth. What a day it will be when the Antichrist is at his highest power, greatest influence even over the church, when Satan seems to rule, when people have not only given to the delusion but are delighting in wickedness, now you think it's bad now. It's going to get much worse. And when it seems at its lowest point, our Lord Jesus will appear. And when he will speak, just the breath of his mouth, the sound coming out of his mouth with that sharp sword coming out of his mouth, he will utterly and decidedly defeat the enemy. And there will be no more lies. It is impossible for me to imagine a world without lies. And yet when Jesus will appear, all lies will be defeated. And only truth will reign. This is how Isaiah describes it. And this is what Paul is thinking when he's writing this. He's thinking about Isaiah 11.4. 
Isaiah 11, 4, with righteousness he shall judge the poor. No more lies, no more injustice, no more perverted sentences. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Those who cannot defend themselves, those who cannot advocate for themselves will actually get exactly what they need. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. On that day, the day of the Lord, the truth will prevail and all the lies will be proven wrong. Jesus will come and pronounce judgment on all falsehood. His word, his very word will restore justice. And those who have believed the gospel will be completely vindicated. And all of us would say, I have always believed this. And now I know without any shadow of doubt, I don't have any confusion in my mind. There's no temptation to believe a lie anymore that this is exactly true. That this is how things are. And all those who did not believe the truth will be condemned. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me finish on this. Look at how Paul finishes the chapter. This is how I want to finish the sermon. Remember, he's talking to believers who are confused about the second coming. They're persecuted. They're suffering, struggling to hold on to the truth. Maybe like some of us this morning, maybe like many of us this morning, we're struggling to hold on to the truth in the midst of all the deception and confusion. Look at verses 13 and 14. And let this be a great encouragement to you and what you take away from this sermon. Paul says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the reminder. This is how he ends this section on the end times. He ends it with the reminder that over the temporary, over the confusing, stands a God who is eternally truthful. We have a God who loves us. He says, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Over all of this is a God who loves you. We have a God who chose us from the beginning to be saved. When we are wrestling with the chronology of the end times and we get our charts out and we work in pencil because we're not sure how it's going to work, when we do that, please remember, there is a God from the beginning, from eternity to past, chose you to inherit His glory. Whatever the order of things, it's all going to lead to the same place. You're going to inherit His glory. You have been destined to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the encouragement that comes to us, even in the midst of confusion, even in the midst of deception. We have a God who sanctified us by His Spirit, meaning He set us apart from the world. The world that is unable to resist the lies of the enemy. But the Spirit comes into our lives and into our hearts and gives us a new nature that can love the truth. The only people in the world who can love the truth are the Christians. Because we have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, we've been sanctified by Him, so that now we have a new nature, a new heart that is able to love the truth. We have a God who gave us power to believe in the truth of the gospel. Power to believe. Why would I believe any of this? Because God changed me. He gave me a gift of faith. So now, when I hear the truth, my heart goes toward it. And I believe it. And I love it. We have a God who called us by preaching of the gospel of grace to our hearts. God has put a person in your life that was able to verbalize the gospel for you. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your grandparents. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe it's your neighbor. Somebody spoke the truth to you, and because the Spirit has sanctified you, And because God has chosen you, you've embraced it by faith, and that sets you apart. 
We have a God who destined us to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, these are the eternal truths that are meant to provide eternal comfort. It's not accidental that he talks about God giving us eternal comfort, good hope through grace. Comfort here is not sort of, oh, I feel better now. No, comfort here is the strength that comes through it. It's the strengthening to persevere, to stand firm in light of the persecution and the confusion. So whatever your circumstances are today, whether you are suffering today, maybe barely holding on, whether you are temporarily confused by some teaching, whether you are persecuted for your faith, whether we are all entering the time of the final delusion, these eternal truths will sustain you and they will carry you through. Now, we take all those truths and we just call it the gospel. When Paul is talking about the truth, he's talking about the message of the gospel that comes through Jesus, who came into the world of lies. I mean, put the biblical story in perspective. We are confused, deceived, having believed the lie and walking, walked away from the truth. And here comes Jesus, born into this world of lies, born into the world of deception. And yet He is the Word. He is the truth. He is the way and the life. He, he is that person who comes to restore truth to this world. And yet He Himself is slandered, lied about, betrayed, unjustly condemned, and put to death in a shameful way on the cross. And this is where the devil, the father of lies, feels that he has won. He feels that he has tricked Jesus, that all that falsehood has finally paid off, and now Jesus is dead, and yet the devil has tricked himself. And on the resurrection morning, when Jesus comes out of the grave, truth prevails. His word shines forth. And it is his word that brings that good hope through grace to us. It is the same word, the same word of the gospel, the same proclamation that Jesus died for our sins and he rose for our justification, that same message that gives us comfort now. Those same eternal truths come into, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of deception, and help us persevere and stand firm. So I'm going to ask you at the end of this sermon to stand firm in the true teaching until Jesus prevails against our enemy on that last day.